You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. It is that time we take your calls 011-883-0702 and your SMSs 31702, the WhatsApp line 072-702-1702 and you can tweet at M using the hashtag 702 Afternoons. We're with the naked scientist Chris Smith. Chris, how are you doing? I'm amazed. That was word perfect and so fast. That was superb. You've been practicing. It's my job. I wish I could do that. <laughs> it is my job. Um, so it's like 5,000 we... <laughs> words a minute. Very good. Are you okay? I am okay. But you know, interestingly enough, one thing that I got advised when I, when I got into radio was to improve my reading speed and to learn how to read down the middle of the page. And maybe there is a science to that versus reading incomplete full sentences. But I have been able to master the art of reading down the page. Maybe I think they call it skimming, where I get the essence of what a subject is about um, if I don't have time to read it in depth. I think a lot of politicians do that, but they they don't read down the middle either. Um, but Scientists are very thorough, on the other hand, so you only get a thorough service here on The Naked Scientist on 702. <laughs> yes. Speaking of which. <laughs> yes, we do. And we've got our first question. This is uh, Keith in Malvern who says, Doc, what formula, what's the formula for oxygen in hospitals and liquid nitrogen? Right, well, oxygen on the periodic table O... And oxygen, because of its configuration of electrons, likes to hang around with another oxygen atom. So there are O2, two molecules, a molecule with two atoms in it, O2. Nitrogen is similar, and because of its configuration of electrons, it would end up with an unstable situation if it was just hanging around N on its own. And so N teams up with another N and forms a triple covalent bond, which is N2. So you get O2, which is oxygen molecules, and N2, which are nitrogen molecules. And, of course, that oxygen is pure when you receive it in the hospital. Well, it depends what you mean by pure. Um, by you pure, can't I mean it's 100%. The that hasn't str- well, there, there could be the odd atom of something else that's strayed in. But, yes, um, the way that they, they actually do make this, this um, for medical-grade oxygen is that you take air and you squeeze it really hard... And when you squeeze it really hard, it gets very hot. And if you take the heat away, it then condenses into a liquid. And different gases boil at different temperatures. So if you therefore warm it up again, you will get different things boiling off at different temperatures and you can collect them. And in that way, you can distill out the gas that you want. And you'll get pretty close to to what, what you need precisely. And it just depends on the stringency of your technique or your process now if you need something if you're doing research and you absolutely can't have something in there that isn't purely just one species of gas you can pay a lot of money and you can get that but but for most kind of applications you'll be 99 point something percent pure but there might be the odd atom of something else in there that that snuck through but um for for the all intents and practical purposes what you get in hospital is going to be good clean good quality oxygen all right, and then we have a voice note. Hi, Clevokile. All I wanted to ask the naked scientist is about the air fryer, if it's healthy to use it, or it also co- it could cause uh, cancer or not. 
Thank you. That's a very good question. And also, is it actually frying air or is it like a convention oven? Uh, tell me more, because I, I'm not familiar with, is there one particular brand or make that's being referred to here? So, no. So there's this thing called an air, you, have you heard of an air fryer? They call it no. an air fryer, but basically it's quite a trendy thing at the moment where um, it's a little gadget that says that you it's it's supposedly healthier than putting it in a convention oven that has a grill at the top that you can grill your food in. This one, they call it air frying. So you can put your fries in and they'll come out crispy. You don't have to use oil. Some of them even have a cage that can drain any excess fat. Gotcha. Okay. Well, there are several things to consider about this. One is the, you referred to the F word, fat. One is in, in relation to how much fat you eat. The other is in relation to how hot the food gets and how burned it becomes because both have health implications. Now, fat is bad for you in excess, especially if it's saturated fat because it drives up your cholesterol level and cholesterol furs up blood vessels. So we try to minimize the amount of saturated fat that we eat in our diets in order to have a healthy diet. Now, if you fry lots of food and you have very high fat content in what you're already eating, and you don't get rid of the excess fat, then you're going to push your cholesterol level up higher, and that will accelerate your risk of getting arterial disease. That's first thing. So if you have a way of cooking things that gives you all the taste, makes them well-cooked, makes you want to eat them, but they've drained away some of the fat, that will help to reduce your risk of heart disease, for example. So that's the first point. Second point, and the reference to cancer here is an important one, because when we cook stuff, we, we, on the one hand, render it tastier and we render it safer because we will remove from it the potential for infection if there are microorganisms that have crept into the food that could infect us and cause food poisoning. There are some toxins that will break down under high temperature, others that won't, admittedly, but some that do. And as a result of that, you will end up with a safer thing to eat. If you cook it, you will also liberate more calories. And the reason that our ancestors began to cook foods is because quite quickly it was, it was obvious that it benefited them because when you cook foods and raise the temperatures, you make chemistry happen inside the food. This releases more calories, makes more things available for digestion to get their mitts on, and therefore it makes you healthier if you don't know where your next meal is coming from. So cooking is good in those respects, but when you raise the temperature of food to beyond a critical threshold, you begin to cause chemical reactions, which include the reactions that will produce some toxic species. There are some chemicals which, when you make them, they can actually damage your DNA. And that damage, if you damage DNA enough, can lead to cancer. And so what we're trying to achieve is taste, yes, safety, yes, liberating calories in a good way, yes, but not burn to a crisp because those burn products, although sometimes they do taste good, they are potentially capable of damaging your DNA and causing cancer. So if you've got a cooking device that will drain off the excess fat and which will not singe your food to the extent that you end up with loads of burn bits on it that will give you cancer that is probably a good thing as well all right we have another question that says please ask the doctor to explain to us the listeners the difference between diabetes type 1 and 2 especially type 1 people advise you about diet to get rid of it and don't really understand the lack of producing insulin that's from voyo hi voyo the answer is that Diabetes, actually the word, um, comes from a scientist and an anatomist called Thomas Willis hundreds of years ago. And 
the word diabetes means a siphon in Greek. And Thomas Willis's observation, he actually said, I'm going to put it in quotes, he's written down, he called people with diabetes diabetics because they piss a plenty because it makes you wee a lot. And the reason it makes you wee a lot is because you have very high levels of sugar in the bloodstream. So this happens because people with diabetes fail to control blood sugar adequately. If you have type 1 diabetes, you have a complete absence of insulin naturally in the body. This happens because the immune system, for reasons that are poorly understood, but probably in relation to a combination of a genetic predisposition and probably some kind of prior infection that sensitizes the immune system, goes to your pancreas, the organ that normally makes the hormone insulin, and it destroys all of your beta cells that are the insulin-producing cells. And because it destroys them all, you're robbed of your beta cells and you cannot make any insulin. So people who tend to get type 1 diabetes usually have an early age onset. It usually starts around the age of 10 or 11 or 12, probably in relation to a prior infection, as I've said. And we do see a seasonal surge in diabetes cases of type 1, probably because certain viruses come seasonally. So that is what type 1 diabetes is absence of insulin, very high levels of blood sugar, and life-threatening if not managed. Type 2 diabetes is different. It is again associated with very high levels of blood sugar, but the pancreas in someone who's got type 2 diabetes is often, at least in the initial stages of type 2 diabetes, producing far more insulin than someone who doesn't have diabetes. So this person's awash with insulin but their cells around their body have become deafened. It's a bit like going to a really loud rock concert and there's plenty of music playing, that's like the insulin, but it's so loud that you eventually go deaf and you can't hear the music, you can't hear the insulin signal. So people with type 2 diabetes become resistant to the effects of their own insulin. And as I say, at least initially in the course of the disease, they often have sky-high levels of insulin, but they also end up with sky-high levels of blood sugar. But because they've got some insulin and it's working to some extent, they don't have the same life-threatening consequences that the type 1 diabetics do. They just have many of the side effects and other slower sort of accruing of damage to their tissues. People with type 2 diabetes are, are more likely to be older people and this is associated with weight gain. So if you are overweight or obese, you are at high risk of developing diabetes. We don't exactly understand why people get this so-called diabetes, but this is what causes resistance to your insulin. And it's also associated with very high levels of blood fats, so high cholesterol, which furs up arteries, and the high blood sugar also can lead to damage to your eyes and especially damage to kidneys. And this means that Type 2 diabetes is a big risk factor for kidney failure, and kidney failure is a high risk factor for ending up on things like dialysis. So it's life-threatening, but in a different kind of way. And if you lose weight as a person who's put on too much weight, you can resensitize yourself to your own insulin. So in some people, especially if caught early, some people's cases, you can regain control of your blood sugar just through calorie control, eating the right amount, not eating too much sugar, and losing weight. Type 1 diabetes you absolutely can't and you have to take supplementary insulin which we now obtain medically from uh, companies that make it but historically we used to get insulin from animal pancreas mm. and this effectively controls the condition for those people. 
All right, we have Keith in Ethel. Hi, Keith. Chris is uh, listening to you. Hi. Well, hi. hi. Um, I've got a question regarding allergies, uh, particularly allergies to bees, wasps, hornets, etc. Um, if I get stung, I can take a strong antihistamine tablet, not one you purchase over the counter, for example, or um, use an EpiPen uh, equivalent, which uh, I'm told, but I'm not sure, is an in, uh, adrenaline injection. So the two questions are, what's the difference between the two and which one is more effective? As in the difference well, between um, the EpiPen and the antihistamine, is that what you're saying? Uh, uh, the antihistamine, a tablet, a very strong yes. tablet, versus the EpiPen. I yes. got you, I got you. That's a great question, Keith. When we suffer an allergic reaction, what's happening is that some stimulus, usually something from outside the body, has activated a family of cells called mast cells. And mast cells sit in your tissues and they are like policemen. And their job is to sound the alarm when something comes into your tissue that shouldn't be there and activate the immune system. And when that starts happening to things that are in abundance and normally innocuous, you get an allergic reaction, which is when you have an exaggerated reaction to something you don't need to react to. And these mast cells are stuffed full of histamine. And this is there as the burglar alarm. It recruits inflammation, the immune system. It opens up blood vessels, it sensitizes nerve cells, it makes blood vessels leaky and pulls in immune cells saying, come to this area, this is where something bad is happening, you need to come and sort this out. And so when we have an allergic reaction, the symptoms you get are the consequences of that histamine release. So if you get pollen in your eye and you get an itchy eye, that's because the pollen has got onto the mast cells in your eyes and caused them to discharge histamine and that histamine is causing all the symptoms. So you can manage simple allergies with antihistamines, which are molecules that go onto the same structures that the histamine would normally activate and they stick to it but can't activate it. It's rather like putting a big coat over the burglar alarm bell. So you can't hear the bell ringing because someone's put a pillow or a coat over it. It's doing the same thing. It's stopping the histamine actually sounding the alarm. They only really work well when you take them before the histamine's released because once you've got the problem, you've already got all the symptoms. But if you take the antihistamines first, then you can stop the symptoms becoming so severe and that's how you control your allergies. But with life-threatening allergies, where you can have enormous histamine release all around the body to such an extent that everything swells up and you can go into what's called anaphylaxis, you cannot just manage that with antihistamine alone, usually. It's part of the treatment, but what will, go, what will happen is resuscitation initially with often adrenaline. And adrenaline narrows blood vessels and keeps up blood pressure and at the same time, we give big doses of steroids and we give antihistamines as well. So an EpiPen would be given to somebody who, and that's because it contains epinephrine, which is the other word for adrenaline. And you would give that to somebody with a history of life-threatening allergy to, for instance, peanuts or shellfish or something that they know causes that, that very overzealous immune response that is inappropriate and could kill them. And if administered promptly, will save lives and, and does save lives every day. Antihistamines, whilst potentially used in combination with other measures when you're having a life-threatening reaction, are more normally used as part of a simple remedy to control uncomplicated, more trivial allergy, because if taken before you are exposed to the thing, we'll keep it under control.
All right, we go to Rod in Randburg. Rod, go ahead. Good afternoon, hello, Chris. Quick one. Uh, you, you, there's, a, there's an easy way with a PCR test to check whether or not you've got the COVID-19 virus. Is there a test to check whether or not you've actually got the vaccine? So if you arrive at customs or passport control, and so we don't trust your certificate, we're going to test you. Is there a way of doing it? Oh, Rod, there is. And the way in which you can do this is to look for antibody because when you have these vaccines, it produces two responses in the immune system. It produces a population of white blood cells called T cells and it also produces a population of B cells that make antibody. So washing around in your bloodstream in the aftermath of the vaccine will be antibodies that recognise the part of the virus that's in the vaccine. Now, you could say, well, hang on, how do I discriminate then between somebody who's had vaccine and somebody who's caught the infection? When you catch coronavirus, you won't just make antibodies against the same bit of the virus that's in the vaccine. You'll also make antibodies against other bits of the virus. So you can do antibody tests, which look for bits of the virus as well as bits of the outer coat of the virus that are in the vaccine. If you have antibodies to both, it proves that you've been infected in the past. If you have antibodies exclusively, to the outer coat of the virus that's represented in the vaccines, but not to the inner workings of the virus, that shows you've been vaccinated. So there is a way that you could do that. And I think that is quite an important thing that's needed. We've got Gilbert in Pretoria. Go ahead, Gilbert. Hi, I've got a question. Mm. Um, how does minoxidil 5 help with hair rego? Ooh, minoxidil. Doctor? Uh, hi, Gilbert. This was a a drug that was being trialed for something else entirely, and one side effect was that it causes hair growth. Now, Viagra was discovered in the same way, that it was being trialed as a treatment for certain cardiovascular situations and indications, and they noticed that people had this other side effect that was beneficial under certain circumstances. So it's one of these so-called off-target effects where a drug can sometimes, as a side effect or as a co-effect of its intended application, have these other consequences. Um, I'm not entirely sure how minoxidil causes hair regrowth, but it it does seem to cause modest increase in hairiness, again, in previously bald bits of the body. So it seems to in some way nourish or re-stimulate or rekindle clapped out or uh, fatigued, resting or quiescent hair follicles. And... uh, is, is, as I say, an off-target effect of its intended purpose, which was something completely different. All right, Doctor, I think you covered it quite well, and I think the minoxidil, I am so, so shocked to hear you saying that it was meant for something else. But maybe next week, or when we come back next year, I'm going to ask you about the different types of medication that we consume regularly that were meant for something else but we're using because of the side effects. I think that will make for an interesting one. That is The Naked Scientist, Dr. Chris Smith.